Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the IMA. My name is Aileen Burns, and together with Johan Lund, who's not here tonight, I co-direct the institution. In the spirit of reconciliation, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where we meet this evening, and by paying my respects to elders past and present, extending that same respect to emerging community leaders and to all indigenous peoples here with us this evening. It's also my great pleasure to introduce Alana Kushner, who is a freelance curator and lawyer. She's the director and founder of Guest Work Agency, an art advocacy and law firm for artists, galleries, and collectors. And we've um, had the opportunity to work with Alana on a couple of projects, including some advice around the Celine Condorelli sculpture, but also doing a masterclass this afternoon um, on copyright issues, which are quite important in the arts, as you'll know. Uh, Alana is also a sessional lecturer at the University of Melbourne in the School of Culture and Communication, where she teaches undergraduate and postgraduate subjects, including contemporary art, curating contemporary art, arts law, and managing creative content. She is also director of the Lion Foundation and a former board member of the Runway Experimental Art Magazine and Bus Projects. In 2013, she completed an MFA in curating at Goldsmiths in London, and she also holds a BA in art history from the Bachelor of, and a Bachelor of Law from the University of Melbourne. So I'm really excited to have Alana here to talk about curatorial authorship, and please join me in giving her a warm welcome to Brisbane. Okay. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, past, present and future, and also to thank Aileen and Johan and Sanchincha and all the team here for having me. Um, I've really enjoyed my time here so far. So, curatorial authorship. Um, I'd like to start by looking at um, the role of the curator and how it's evolved in parallel with this kind of prevailing era of contemporary art that we now face ourselves in. I think we're now in a moment where it's possible, and my argument is that it's um, necessary to consider how the law can protect the work of curators specifically. So in today's talk, I'm going to consider how copyright law can theoretically protect um, exhibitions organised by curators. And I'm using the word theoretically quite deliberately here. Copyright law can, in theory, be used as a means of protecting exhibitions, but the protection of the work of curators remains an area which is almost entirely unconsidered by either courts or the legislature, not only in Australia, but also in an international context. So I'm going to preface my discussion on the curator's copyright by recounting a number of groundbreaking exhibitions and curatorial projects um, which took place now in the 20th century in which the curator or auteur, uh, or I should say the curator as auteur or author has taken centre stage. And I'm then going to consider the relevance of copyright law by analysing Australian copyright legislation um, and compatible case law as well. And in the final part of my talk, I'm also just going to briefly introduce how exhibitions have also challenged the curator's copyright. 
specifically those which have involved recreating, reconstructing, or um, revis otherwise revisiting past exhibitions. So let's get started. So I think it's important to have a bit of a contextual understanding of the history of a certain, what I call, trajectory of curating practice, um, a style of curating practice, which is perhaps more suitable complementary to copyright law than other forms of curating. So I'm not going to talk about all forms of curating today, just this specific, what I would call a style of curating or methodology. And there are two touch points in this history that are particularly relevant here. The first is A.B. Warburg's Nemocyan Atlas. And you can see an image of part of it on the screen now. And also Harold Zeman's exhibition Der Hang zum Gesamtkunstwerk, or The Tendency to Gesamtkunstwerk. And these two projects really pioneered the notion of the exhibition as a Gesamtkunstwerk, which loosely translates from German to life as a total work of art. Um, so A.B. Warburg's Nemocyan Atlas, or Atlas of Images, um, is a project that he worked on from 1924 until his death in 1929. Warburg was um, a cultural theorist um, and also an art historian. And this project was quite literally the physical, it, you know, the physical embodiment of of his thesis that the Renaissance functioned as the afterlife of antiquity. Um, it was also a self-initiated research project of his. And so to create this compilation of material, War Warburg, um, he mainly used photographs, but he also added in um, illustrations that he'd torn out of books and newspaper clippings, postage stamps, maps and manuscript pages, which made reference to classical and Renaissance art objects, um, as well as astrological and astronomical imagery, as well as artists, philosophers and poets. And now every single item in this atlas is actually, it's quite amazing. You can see it online. You can go, um, it's accessible through the Warburg Library Archives, which is held by Cornell University. So if you go to the Cornell University Library website, you can actually, it's quite amazing. You can click on every single item with your cursor and it'll come up with detailed information on every single piece of material in this atlas. Now, at the time of his death, the project spanned 63 wooden panels, and each of these panels he covered with a dark cloth before pinning the material to it. And each panel is a display of these very deliberately arranged items. Um, and the arrangement is designed in such a way as to tell us something, something more than the individual parts something more than each piece of material that is pinned on each of those 63 wooden panels. So you can see here the intended layout of the 63 <coughs> panels. Um, and this was actually featured in an exhibition which took place quite recently called A.B. Warburg Nemosign Builder Atlas or Atlas of Images. And it was held at the ZKM Center for Art and Media in Karlsruhe in Germany. Has anyone been there? Um, in 2016 to mark the 150th anniversary of Warburg. Um, and here you can actually see the intended spatial layout and the audience flows of the exhibition at ZKM, um, which I would call a kind of exhibition of exhibits. Um, and I think 
The atlas itself was an exhibit of exhibits, and it even instigated, like this one at ZKM, a number of exhibitions itself. So it's an exhibition of an exhibition of an exhibition. Um, and this one at ZKM, um, I think, to date, is the most recent. Um, and this notion of an exhibition brings me to think about the etymology of these very terms themselves, exhibition and exhibit. So the noun exhibit, as you can see on the screen, it's generally used for a document or object produced in court as evidence, with the Latin root exhibitum. Um, you exhibit evidence in a court of law. The evidence itself is named an exhibit, so you've got exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, and so on. Whereas the verb exhibit, i.e. to exhibit, is generally used for offering or presenting to view from the Latin term exhibitus. So I think what's interesting here is the relevance of the notion of the exhibit, not only to curating practice, but also to legal practice as well. The second historical touch point I wanted to discuss brings us all the way forward now to 1975. So that's 50 or so years after Wahlberg started working on his atlas. And in that year, we have um, the eponymous Swiss curator, Harold Zeman, setting up the first freelance curating enterprise. And he set up an office in his home in the village of Tenya in the Ticino province in Switzerland. And he gave his enterprise the tongue-in-cheek name um, Agentur Fuhr Gestige Gastarbeit, which loosely translates as Agency for Intellectual Guestwork, hence Guestwork Agency. Um, and as some of you might know, his curating agency was responsible for um, curating on an independent contractor-like basis some of the most important exhibitions of the 20th century, including, as you can see here, an image, uh, this is an image from the fifth iteration of Documenta in 1972, uh, um, as well as the Venice Biennales of 1999 and 2001, towards the end of his life. And I love this photograph of Simon. Uh, I think you could write a whole book about it um, and what it represents. Um, and so here you can see um, he is sitting on a throne, throne-like chair. I think it was actually an artwork that was in Documenta 5, and he's taking questions from the press. This is on the final day of Documenta 5 in 1972. And I think it's quite clear the message that he was sending out to the art world at this point. You know, it's a, he's very deliberately self-positioning himself. All eyes are on him, almost. All eyes are on him, on him alone. And everyone's mesmerised, they're entranced by him, this aura of the curator that's literally, that everyone's possessed by. Um, one of the exhibitions he curated, and this is the one I wanted to discuss today, um, which has taken somewhat, like not entirely, but somewhat of a backseat in the last couple of years, um, say for there's some periodic mentions of this exhibition, particularly by Hans Obrist, who loves to talk about it as the exhibition which inspired him to become a curator. Um, this exhibition called Der Hang zum Gesamtkunstwerk, or The Tendency to Gesamtkunstwork, which was held at the Kunsthaus Zurich in 1983. And at the time, Zeman was engaged as, and I, I love this description as well, he described himself as a permanent, independent curator from 1981 until 2000. So make of that what you wish. But he, 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 he always called himself an independent curator 
ever since he initiated his agency. Um, I guess nowadays you might call that sort of a position like an associate curator of an institution. Anyhow, the notion of Gesundkunstwerk, which, as I mentioned earlier, loosely translates to life as a total work of art, was a lifelong fascination for Zeman. Um, and in this exhibition, he showcased artists who similarly strived for this total work of art. Um, so, you know, these visions that the artists had of, of their utopia. And um, you can see in this image here, these are his ideas for the exhibition written on toilet paper. So that's now in the Harold Zaman archives at the Getty. Um, so, for example, in the exhibition, he included a reconstruction of Gaudi's uh, hanging model for the unfinished church of the Colonia Goel, which is where Gaudi brought together all of his architectural innovations for the first time. And the fact that Zaman chose to reconstruct the model for a church which, in reality, remained unfinished, I think suggests a darker underside to this exhibition, that with every utopia there is a dystopia, um, that you know, there's somewhat you know, almost totalitarian idea of an ultimate or a complete work of art is an unreachable feat. Um, this is a photograph from a televised discussion which was held on the occasion of the exhibition. So you can see boys there on the left. Um, Bazon Brock uh, is a gentleman in the centre and he was also a co, actually a co-curator of Documenter 5, even though Zayman is often attributed as the curator of Documenter 5, Zayman is second from the left. Um, and in this discussion, the panellists discussed this, this paradox in the exhibition um, and the relevance of aesthetics to politics and to fascism in particular. Um, and I love that this was broadcast on TV in 1983. It was like a public broadcast. I don't think today you'd see this kind of panel discussion on free-to-air TV. Um, and actually, the entire panel discussion was recreated by, yet again, ZKM in Karlsruhe in Germany, um, using actors in 2014. Um, and you can watch it on their website, but you have to understand German. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's um, an interesting recreation, which I'm not going to... I'm going to talk about recreating exhibitions, but not recreating panel discussions, but that's an interesting one. So anyhow, for the exhibition, Zeman also used the exhibition design and the directions of the audience flows to produce or realise this total picture, or total universe approach to art. And so in the very centre of the exhibition space, I'm yet to find a really good image of this, so you just have to imagine it for the time being. In the very centre of the exhibition space, Zeman arranged what he described in the exhibition catalogue as a small space with some of the primary artistic gestures of our century, the 20th century. So Duchamp's A Bride Strip Bear by Our Bachelors, paintings by Vasily Kandinsky, Piet Mondrian, Mondrian and Kazmir Malevich. And so it was a physical mani manifestation of an, a physical manifestation and exhibit of what in Zeman's view were the ultimate total works of art. And when displayed and viewed together, as an audience member flowing through the exhibition, these works also functioned together as a total work of art in, 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 in a collective sense. 
Now, since the tendency to Gesamtkunst work, the placing of artworks and or objects in the physical centre of an exhibition to, I guess, advocate for their centrality to an exhibition's the essential theme or concept or idea or question has become a curatorial trope, um, which has been used by other curators to great effect. So, for example, here we can see a shot of um, a photo of um, Documenta 13 held in 2012, which was directed by Caroline Christophe Bakarjev, Bakarjev, Caroline. Um, and she devised what she named the brain uh, in the rotunda space of the Museum Fredericianum, which served as the centre for a broader system of artworks and events which took place throughout the building and the city of Cassell more generally or more broadly, um, as well as, of course, in parallel exhibitions and events in Kabul, um, Alexandria, Cairo, um, and Banff. Um, and that's a component of Document 13, um, which seems to have been forgotten quite quickly, because I know there's been a, quite a lot of controversy around Document 14 just last year, with part of the exhibition being held, or um, the event being held in Athens, um, in addition to Cassell. Um, but, you know, you could go back further in the history of Documenta and even look at Okoye and Wazor's Document 10, um, which had platforms taking place on multiple continents throughout the world and even further back beyond that. Anyhow, in the brain, Bakarjev included photographs by former life photographer David E. Sherman of... Um, a fashion model turned war correspondent and photographer Lee Miller, um, and she was depicted, uh, she, she was in Adolf Hitler's bathtub in his Munich apartment, um, and these photographs were taken on the 30th of April 1945. Um, there were stone miniatures of Bactrian princesses from Central Asia from approximately 2000 BC, and bottles which were actually painted on by the Italian artist Giorgio Morandi as models for his still life paintings. And so it's here in the brain that the kind of conceptual strands of the exhibition literally, quite literally came together. Um, and the conceptual strands for Document 13 were uh, collapse and recovery, on stage, under siege, hope and revolt and retreat. And we could even say that Documenters more generally, as these kind of mega exhibitions, have a tendency for this Gesamtkunstwerk approach. So, for example, um, Documenter 9 in 1992, which is curated by Jan Hoet, also had this section, not this section, but a section of the Fredericianum, which was dedicated to Watts, or rather, um, who Hoet thought, the curator thought of as representatives of revolutionary works. Um, and they're also actually, they were mostly by dead artists, artists who were already dead at the time, like Jacques-Louis David, with his very well-known Death of Marat, as well as artists like Gauguin and Giacometti and Boys. Um, and interestingly, in the 1992 exhibition catalogue, Howard even described himself as a curatorial artist and he asserted that the exhibition was his text. Um, but I would say it really was Zayman who used this exhibition concept to successfully project this image of the curator as an individual who contributes their creative mindset to a project in a role that is on par with that of the artist. 
The 90s also saw independent curators begin to self-organise in an attempt to address issues of curatorial practice, which they shared in common. Um, VOTI, V-O-T-I, um, call, also called Union of the Imaginary. Has anyone heard of VOTI here? No? Um, so this was actually a private mailing list forum, if any of you remember back in the day mailing list forums, which was initiated by a group of international curators in response to what they saw as this lack of communal support for resolving such issues and for what they perceived to be a growing homogenising tendency imposed on curatorial activity. So the topics they discussed in this email chain included um, the, what the museum of the 21st century can and should be, um, as well as, relevantly, the role of curators, um, curator contracts, and the related issues of money and commitment. And at the time, most of the curators who participated in this email chain um, worked independently of institutions. Um, and they very much embraced it at the, what was then quite the new jet-setting culture and this idea of, you know, this, this, this um, style of curating mega exhibitions upon request. Um, and since then, the participating curators have become they're pretty much a who's who of superstar-style curators, um, with most of them now actually being engaged on a permanent or semi-permanent style basis by significant art institutions. So they included Hans-Ulrich Obrist. He was actually... Hans-Ulrich Hans Obrist and Carlos Basualdo, um, they were the founders, and they were the self-appointed secretaries of Voti. There was Aquain Weso, there was Juan Ru, Francesco Bonami, Maria Lind, Utometa Bauer, um, a, a lot of um, them you can see on the screen here, though. But you know, this this image is now 20 years old, so um, it's just pretty amazing. I think that they all gathered, not in well here you can see physically, but online actually, in the early days of email chain communications to discuss issues in their field. Um, I think we also need to factor in the initiation of a number of academic programs, which. Are, are dedicated to curating practice. First, those which were not offered for university credit. So you've got like Le Magasin um, in Grenoble in France. You've got um, Diapple in Amsterdam. Um, and this also was followed by two, um, a number of credit-based postgraduate courses. Sorry, and I should say CCS Bard in New York. And then a number of um, credit-based postgraduate courses, so like the Royal Academy of Art in London and Goldsmiths as well, which they all contributed to the authority of the curator's voice in the 90s. Um, and finally, the third component, which really, I think, authorised the central role or legitimated the central role of the curator was this sudden growth of publications on the history and theories of curating. So, um, Paul O'Neill, some of you may have heard him. I think, I think he's one of the key protagonists of really the development of theories around curating. And he observed in one of, one of the first books, actually, that he co-edited called Curating Subjects, way back from 2007, 10 years ago, um, that there, there, was there was little examination of 20th century display practices between the period after which Brian O'Doherty wrote um, Inside the White Cube and so that was originally published as a series of essays in Art Forum in 1976 until the 1990s. So with these three components, so the publication of this discourse around the history and theories of curating, the development of postgraduate education 
um, and qualification on the subject and the organisation and professionalisation of curators themselves. All these three elements, they authorise the blurring of the line between the role of the curator and the role of the artist and the output of the curator and the output of the artist. Um, and on occasion in this brief history, the curator as artist has been met with resistance, most notably from artists. So for example, in his article some of you may have read now a few years ago, Art Without Artists, um, the artist and also the founder of Eflux, which is an online publishing, art publishing, and uh, well, he would describe it as a curatorial platform. Anton Vidokal raised the ire of many curators um, with his views on the subject, um, and they included that, and I quote, Whereas artists' engagement with a range of social forms and practices not normally considered part of the vocabulary of art serves to open up the space of art and grant it increased agency, curatorial and institutional attempts to recontextualise their own activities as artistic or generalise art into a form of cultural production has the opposite effect. They shrink the space of art and, redu and reduce the agency of artists. So what I would like to say in response to that is that this sort of view, I think, tends to arise in response to the actions of curators, which have already occurred. So that is, they're reactive to the curator, the curator's developing role as an auteur or an author, rather than forewarnings against it. Um, and I think Zayman is still an excellent example of a curator who worked with this antagonism rather than against it. So for example, um, there was resistance, a number of artists that were featured in Documenta 5 and ended up not being featured in Documenta 5 but were originally part of the artist list. Um, they they um, resisted some of the um, curating approaches, I should say, of Zayman um, and they wrote a kind of a manifesto against um, overzealous curators, which was originally published in Art Forum. But what Zayman did when it came to the Documenta 5 exhibition catalogue is he actually republished the manifesto in it. Um, but I should say, for the purpose of moving ahead with this um, talk um, in identifying the curator's copyright, I'm going to put the artist versus curator debate aside um, and instead I'm going to embrace the shared characteristics of artistic and curatorial practice. So now we get to the legal side of things. So how does a Gesundkunstwerk style of exhibition sit within the remit of the law? I think this question, really, you have to look at the law itself to be able to analyse this properly, uh, specifically legislation and some case law. Um, but as I mentioned in my introduction, there's very few courts um, throughout the world which have specifically considered the rights of curators. That said, I do think that copyright law and moral rights law is the appropriate kind of realm or area of law which is, or I should say, it's best suited at this point in time to the legal protection of curatorial practice. 
And given our location here in Australia, I'm going to address the question by looking at the contents of Australian copyright law and the Copyright Act from the Commonwealth Copyright Act in particular. So um, all law is jurisdictional and it's restricted to certain jurisdictions. Um, so copyright law here is different to copyright law in other states, other countries. Um, so yeah, so this is by no means, I should say, uh, kind of a worldview of copyright. And in reality, the legal analysis of the curator's copyright should vary depending on the jurisdiction the curator is in, where they're working in, um, and yes, so that's that point. But at the same time, like many um, countries, Australia is a party to a number of international treaties like the Berne Convention for the protection of literary and artistic works. Um, and this, this convention and a couple of others do two important things. Firstly, they mandate certain minimum standards for the legislation of modern copyright law. And secondly, they ensure reciprocal arrangements with member states. So one common principle, one common copyright principle, for example, is that Copyright is a set of exclusive proprietary rights um, which sets out to protect what's generally referred to as creations of the mind. So that's not just a concept that comes from Australian copyright law. Um, that is something that all signatories to the Berne Convention, um, that is a view that they all, um, I guess, promote and are required to interpret into legislation which applies in their specific jurisdictions. Um, copyright law principles come with the rationale that the value, and you can disagree with this, um, the value of the creative industries lies in the economic exploitation of creativity. So copyright was initially initiated based on an economic rationale. We can't deny that. Um, that's a topic for another day though. But what it effectively means for the purposes of this talk is that if you have the right to exclusively reproduce a work, then if someone else wants to exercise that right, they have to pay you a fee um, for the license to do that. So the theory behind copyright protection is that by providing an economic incentive to everyone to produce and disseminate creative material through licenses, with a fee attached that promotes the public good. That's the basic, it's one of the basic principles of copyright law. Or I should say one of the basic principles on which copyright law is founded. Um, another relevant aspect of copyright law to think about is that of authorship. Or rather, who can be an author of a copyright protected work or subject matter? So copyright law generally sets out, as I mentioned, to protect creations of the mind. And it does that by placing greater emphasis on the content of the creative product, so what's actually created, rather than the person or the entity behind that production. So the Copyright Act tells us that copyright subsists or copyright exists, I should say, in certain types of works and other subject matter, notwithstanding who the author may be. So for example, here you can see I've included um, a section from the Copyright Act, section 32. And section 32, subsection one, tells us that 
copyright subsists in an original literary, dramatic, musical or artistic work that is unpublished and of which the author is. Essentially, they have to be a qualified person at the time when the work was made. What is a qualified person? Well, this piece of legislation tells us that it means that they're an Australian citizen or a person resident in Australia. Um, and this same principle applies in section 32.2 to, um, to works that are published as well. So in other words, in very in more simple terms, what this section of the Act is saying is that to be a qualified person, to be able to be recognised as an author of a copyright protected work in Australia under Australian copyright law, you don't have to be a professional artist or a writer or a musician for Australian copyright law to give you protection to what you're creating. Anyone, anyone who's an Australian citizen or a person resident in Australia and elsewhere actually, anyone residing in a country actually which is a signatory to the Berne Convention, they can be recognised as an author and therefore the owner of copyright in what they're creating under Australian copyright law. So that's where we get to the idea that Curators, technically, can be authors of copyright protected subject matter as well. Um, so a further relevant aspect of the legislation to consider is the nature of the content that is afforded protection, afforded legal protection. So part of the Copyright Act provides copyright to subsist provides, I should say, for copyright to subsist or exist in original literary, artistic, dramatic or musical works. The other part of the Copyright Act provides for copyright to subsist in what it calls other subject matter or I should say subject matter other than works and that's things like sound recordings, um, cinematographic films, films or videos, television and sound broadcasts and published editions of works, of published books. Um, which of these, um, so here you can see for example, there's a, this is essentially what a definition looks like in a piece of legislation. So here we can see the Act is defining an artistic work for the purposes of the Act and for the purposes of giving, for example, an artistic work copyright protection. This is the definition. So we have to think about well, which of these categories of copyright protected works might a curated exhibition fall under. Um, so the definition of artistic work provides a number of possibilities for um, accommodating a curated exhibition. So as you can see on the screen, hopefully you can read it from the back. Sorry about the small text. The definition includes a painting, sculpture, drawing, engraving or photograph, whether the work is of artistic quality or not. So the law is not interested in making an aesthetic judgment about the work in principle. Um, and this has also been, I guess, the words used in the definition of artistic work are, are defined themselves. So drawing is used in the definition of artistic work and then drawing is defined again to include a diagram, map, chart or plan. So it's an inclusive definition. Um, a drawing includes those things, but it's not limited to those things. 
Um, but what it effectively means is that a diagram or a map of an exhibition could hypothetically fit within this definition and, and therefore be considered a work in which copyright subsists. Um, an installed exhibition in three-dimensional form um, and which comprises of an arrangement of um, artworks might fit within the definition of a sculpture under artistic work as well. And the word sculpture is also um, further defined in this section of the Act to include a cast or model made for purposes of sculpture. Um, but I don't think that explanation uh, really helps us, gives us any assistance when it comes to looking at the curator's copyright. So the vagueness of um, what's, I guess, not included in this definition um, could provide us with a bit of scope for thinking about um, court cases and how court cases which have looked at copyright subsistence um, might, um, might assist us in, in um, looking at the curator's copyright. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to look at a couple of cases that are not specific to exhibitions per se, but I think some of the principles that they stand for we can be translated to the practice of exhibition making. Um, and so here they are. So the first one, for example, is a New Zealand case, actually, um, the case of Wamori Manufacturing and Lincoln Industries. Um, and in this case, the Court of Appeal of New Zealand, they held that a sculpture should not be confined to the process of carving and modelling representations, but rather that it could extend more broadly to the expression of an idea in three-dimensional form. So it's quite broad. So the court actually found that um, based on that principle, copyright could exist in a frisbee. Does anyone know what a frisbee is here? Yeah. So it was actually a case, this is known as the frisbee case, um, and they actually found that copyright could exist in, in a frisbee for this reason. Um, so, or I should say in other words, they had to, in order to establish whether the frisbee had copyright protection, it needed to fall within one of the uh, categories of artistic work. And so they argued that it was a sculpture. So that's why the court was thinking about whether um, something in three-dimensional form could be considered a sculpture. And so this interpretation um, of the Court of Appeal of New Zealand was actually followed and applied by the Federal Court of Australia. And so that's why it's actually relevant to us here. Uh, and in the Australian case, in Greenfield Products, um, they, the court considered whether a lawnmower drive shaft was a sculpture, and uh, that's not all. There was also the Star Wars case, Lucasfilm Productions. This was actually a UK case, um, and they, the UK courts took a, a broader interpretation of what a sculpture could be. Um, Oh, sorry, I should clarify, in this case, in the Star Wars Lucasfilm Productions case, um, the UK Supreme Court actually rejected the broad interpretation of the sculpture that had been applied in the Frisbee case, in the Lawnmower case, um, and they took a far more conservative approach to what could be considered a sculpture. And in that case, the court considered whether copyright subsisted in various props um, that were created for the Star Wars film enterprise. 
such as the Imperial Stormtrooper helmet. And so the court found that a three-dimensional object that has a utilitarian function, so hence, in this case, the function of a prop is in being in a film, um, that did not amount to sculpture because it had a utilitarian function. And we looked at this case this morning as well. So the term sculpture um, was also considered in this another UK case called um, Creation Records and Newsgroup Newspapers. And the case concerned a group of this scene, essentially, that you can see, um, which then became the image used on the cover of an Oasis album. There was this um, half-filled swimming pool with a Rolls-Royce in it and a number of, you could say, found objects um, and various musicians in the band posing amongst them. Um, and so apparently, um, so the story goes, the reason why the Rolls-Royce was included was because the, um, it, it was a reference to the Beatles, which are one of the big inspirations um, of Oasis. Um, but apparently the other items carried no significance whatsoever, no meaning whatsoever, and they were just found in a BBC stockroom. Um, so anyhow, in this case, the court, um, I should say, actually, what actually happened in this case was um, a newspaper hired a freelance photographer to go along to this scene um, and take a photo of the objects in the setting. At the time, the musicians were not there, uh, but the photographer took a photo of these objects in the scene, and then this image was published in a newspaper. And so, um, uh, Oasis's record label um, brought an action against the newspaper that had published this image, and they argued that it was copyright infringement because there was copyright protection over this scene. And so the question was, does this scene fall within one of the categories of copyright protectable subject matter? Um, any guesses? Do you guys have any, what, what do you think? Do you think this could be protected as copyright protected subject matter? Is this a painting? Yeah? How, why? The photograph is, but the, the freelance photographer that came along, he didn't take a photo of the photo. He went to this actual venue and he took a photo of the place. So he's not... The arrangement of things. Yeah, the, the arrangement of things. So he's not taking... He's not making a copy of the photo. He's making a copy of the scene. Yeah. Did you say this was a UK case again? Yes. Yeah, possibly, yeah. They did, yeah, they, they found that there wasn't enough in this arrangement for copyright to subsist. Let's get a photo of artists at risk. Is it? Right there. Yes, it is. It is, yes. So, it doesn't matter whether it was private property or property? Not for the purposes of copyright law. So that might have brought another issue into it. And actually, even though the record label failed on the copyright claim, they actually succeeded on the basis of a breach of confidential information, which is a separate area of law. So they also argued that this scene was confidential and that the, the photographer that came to take a photo did it was unauthorised um, and that he, that this was, so this was considered confidential information essentially. So the photographer wasn't the photographer that did the album cover? No, no, separate, no. Sorry, yes, so, yes, so just some, 
someone else coming along and taking a photo. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think what's interesting also is that the court said that the installation of items was not a sculpture because it was not permanent. So this was a scene that was set up for the day for the photography shoot, but that was it, and it was taken apart, taken away. Um, but again, um, and also like you mentioned, it was this question of utilitarian versus artistic approach. So the court considered whether this being, they, they called it an installation or a collage, whether that could be considered a sculpture. Um, so I think these, these core interpretations of the term sculpture pose a number of questions for the copyright protection of curated, curated exhibitions. So namely, can the display of artworks be considered a utilitarian function? Or does the selection and arrangement of said artworks have an artistic purpose that takes it beyond it just being a utilitarian function? Another relevant consideration in this legal context is the question of time. So what does it mean for the majority of curated exhibitions, which by nature are often temporary? Um, and this is where we can look to um, philosopher Boris Groys. Um, he has actually looked at this issue um, in an article which he wrote for EFLUX, which came out not too long ago. Um, and it was called, it's called Entering the Flow, Museums Between Archive and Gesamtkunstwerk. And in this article he says, the curatorial project is an event and one cannot reproduce an event because it cannot be isolated from the flow of time. So from the perspective of art rather than law, the value lies in the experience of these sorts of crea creations. That's what Boris Groys is saying, whether they're exhibitions or artworks. Um, but the legislature and the judiciary, they've been very reluctant to translate the value of experiencing an event into the subsistence of copyright protection, into giving it legal protection. So you can see here section 22 of the Copyright Act. It provides that copyright subsists in a work which is first reduced to writing or to some other material form. So this understanding of the exhibition form is really at opposite ends to the approach of the courts who, and the legislature, who have interpreted this material form element as requiring a character of permanence. In other words, just because you have a work or other subject matter that falls within one of the, the categories of protectable subject matter, under the Copyright Act, that's not enough. You need it to be, it needs to be in material form. Um, and there's actually an early um, but much cited Australian High Court case called Victoria Park Racing and Recreation Grounds and Recreation Grounds and Taylor. And the court found in that case, this is from 1937, and the court found that property rights, including copyright, should not be recognised in a spectacle nor can a spectacle be owned in any ordinary sense of the word. So in that instance, it was a horse racing event, which was a spectacle. And actually, um, Taylor was someone who lived next door to the racetrack. And what he did is he built some sort of a platform so that he could stand on top or next to his fence uh, 
and look over onto the racing track and see the races. And so he would broadcast his own, I think it was like a radio program, um, essentially documenting what was happening on the track at the time. But he was doing it on his property. Um, so the question was, were there any property rights in that spectacle of the horse racing event? So the court said, no, there's not. Okay? Um, there's no property rights in an event. When it comes to the protection of the act of curating exhibitions, we can also look to um, an Australian case, a more recent Australian case, much more recent case, on questions of originality and authorship. Um, and this is the case, this is the last case on the list, ICE TV and Nine Network from 2009. Uh, another High Court case, so that's why it's just as important as that 1937 case. Um, and in this case, the High Court considered whether Channel 9's broadcast schedule guides, you know, like TV guides, back in the day we had TV guides, no, which were known as the weekly schedules, whether they were protected by copyright as original literary works. And so this argument was based on the definition of a literary work under the Act, including a compilation. <laughs> so the majority of the judges found that the mere arrangement of the times and titles was not original and did not warrant sufficient skill and labour to be afforded protection. That's the wording that they used. And I think, interestingly, in the decision, the majority, the majority judges, um, they cited the importance of the concept of authorship to the Copyright Act. And they warned that, and I quote, the technological developments of today, this is back in 2009, the technological developments of today throw up new challenges in the paradigm of the individual author. Very profound. Um, they cited the act of compiling the television show details as being the result of both a collaborative effort, and I'm quoting here, a they, they said it was both a collaborative effort and an evolutionary process of development. Um, and I think we can easily transfer this sort of observation to the kinds of processes that we're far more familiar with in the context of making a lot of contemporary art today. I think what was also interesting about the majority judgment in the ICE TV case is that the judges mentioned um, that, and I'm quoting here, a more complex compilation or narrative history will almost certainly require considerable skill and labour in the sense of requiring original productive thought to produce the expression, including selection and arrangement of the material. So in this case, this was a landmark case, in this case the judges essentially afforded some relevance to the intellectual and creative effort in the selection and the arrangement of materials. That's why it's really important for us. And of course, this rationale is something which I'd suggest is something that we can apply to the practice of a curator. Um, you know, a curator might not work with television show titles and screening times, but the content we're often working with is also not original to us. Curating is a far more complicated compilation process. Um, which requires original productive thought um, to produce the expression of the material. So where does that leave this kind of legal analysis of Australian, where, sorry, where does this legal analysis of the Copyright Act in Australia, where does that leave us um, when it comes to curators? I think clearly there's something 
important to be said for the degree of skill and labour involved in curating. And the relevance of this skill and labour to the notion of originality under the Copyright Act. But there are other characteristics of the curated exhibition. I think being its temporal nature and the way in which it consists of the kind of the sum of its found parts, which are significant roadblocks for the legal protection of curators' creations um, under copyright law. So in light of that, I also think it's useful to take a brief look at some of the approaches that other courts have taken um, on this subject, on this topic, namely the Paris Court of Appeals, which sounds like quite an obscure reference, but that's really the only line of court judgments that I could find where they really considered what is the French equivalent to the moral right of integrity of the curator. So it's the closest that a court has come to looking at curator's rights. And so as we go through these examples, I think it's important for you to have a brief awareness, um, well, I should say even before that, just to know that these judges that we're looking at are dependent on a very specific set of circumstances, factual circumstances. They're very, and they involve highly, I should say, idiosyncratic collections of objects. And yes, very particular scenarios. So it's, it's, it's not as simple as just applying them to every curating scenario. Um, in these court judgments, they considered the remit of copyright, um, as well as the moral rights of the authors of these collections of objects. Now, I should note, here we go. So that's where I want to just um, briefly mention what moral rights look like. In, in the, under the Copyright Act in Australia. So unlike copyright, which is a, again, a proprietary right, and by proprietary right, I mean that it can be bought, it can be um, sold, it can be loaned. It, um, moral rights are personal rights, which are granted to the author of copyright, um, and you can't you can't divest them, you can't sell them, you can't license them to anyone else. Once you die, they don't exist anymore. Copyright is different. But it is actually dealt with under the Copyright Act, so that's why it gets slightly confusing. One of the moral rights granted under the Australian Copyright Act is the author's right of integrity of authorship, um, which is otherwise described as the right to not have your work treated in a derogatory way. And so the test of derogatory treatment is whether the act done, and the, and, and the legislation, the words of legislation actually tell us this, the test is whether the act done in relation to the work is prejudicial to the author's honour or reputation. So that's the test. Is it prejudicial to the author's honour or reputation? Um, but this section of the Copyright Act um, is, has not been considered by an Australian court. So we don't have any further guidance as to what this actually means and how you apply it in practice. Um, and specifically, it hasn't been looked at in the context of an artistic work. So it's still a grey area. And that's why we have to look to international court decisions, which have also considered similar moral rights of integrity. So anyway, here are these Paris Court of Appeal decisions that I wanted to look at. Um, the first is a 1998 
I should say a seven to eight decision, which concerned an exhibition at the um, Cinema Museum, the Musée du Cinéma Henri Langlois, which was created in 1972 by Henri Langlois. And Langlois was a film enthusiast and he was a founder of the French Cinémathèque. Um, and he was very, very well known in France during his lifetime um, and, and even up to today. And to, to the extent that in his obituary, which was published in the Washington Post in 1977, it was noted that he was, he, he was called the patron saint of the French film establishment. Um, so here you can see him. Um, here you can see him um, um, awarding uh, or um, pinning the French um, Legion of Honour on Alfred Hitchcock. And um, so his exhibition in his cinema museum, it was an all-encompassing one. It was a kind of a Gesundheitswerk. And it traced the history of moving pictures through more than 5,000 film artefacts. So it had costumes and accessories and props and picture boxes and cameras and models and sets, photographs, manuscripts and so on. Um, and it was like a real cabinet of curiosities. Um, you can see here, like it was very much an immersive style. Um, this was the original installation you can see here. Um, and, you know, as the viewer, your eyes um, are, con you know, it's designed to, you're designed to be overwhelmed by the Im imagery that you're walking through and past. And so after Langlois' death, the French state wanted to transfer the collection to the Palais de Tokyo. And Langlois' heirs objected because the Palais de Tokyo intended to modify some aspects of the exhibition and keep parts of it in storage. Um, and so what is now known as the Centre for Contemporary Art was once envisioned to be the French Cinémathèque in Paris. Um, and there was a major refurbishment that actually started in the 80s and it was later abandoned. So that's now where the Palais de Tokyo is. And so in this case, the court ruled that the exhibition, I actually use the word, the exhibition was an intellectual creation. And they said that it was protected under the French Intellectual Property Code. And so in the decision, they didn't just recognise copyright subsistence in the exhibition and the collection, um, but they also said that Langlois had imbued the exhibition and collection with his personality, such that the spirit of the collection shouldn't have been distorted by the Palais de Tokyo. And so the reasoning of the court reflected that, and this is where it becomes quite different to Australian copyright law, they recognise that French, French moral rights legislation, um, it overtly recognises and protects authors of anthologies and uh, collections of works, which by the choice or arrangement of the subjects, um, the legislation, the French intellectual property um, code legislation actually describes as being an intellectual creation. Second, um, Paris Court. the second Paris Court of Appeal decision I wanted to mention was, um, which also considered collections and exhibitions, concerned the art collection of Peggy Guggenheim. Um, although in this case, the court uh, was not willing to 
test the boundaries of authorship as they had been in the previous case which I discussed. And so, just by way of background for those of you who don't know, so Peggy's collection, it comprises of 326 pieces of key European and American artists and sculptors who are active between the 1930s and 50s. Um, and although the collection was never self-professed by Peggy to be a curated exhibition as such, um, the ownership conditions which she placed on the collection, I would argue, imply that it can be considered as such. And so on, upon her death, Peggy donated her collection and her Venetian palazzo um, which housed the collection on the condition that the works remain in Venice and remain on view for six months of the year. And she donated it to the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation, which was founded by her uncle, actually, so that's the relationship between the two. Um, and so at the time, um, the foundation already presided over the New York Guggenheim. At that time, there were only two, well, that was, that was it. So anyhow, legend has it that um, in her own hand, Peggy had written, once written, if Venice sinks, the collection should be preserved somewhere in the vicinity of Venice. So here you can see here. Has anyone been to the collection? Yeah? So you might actually recognise some of the objects, not just the artworks, but objects are actually there, so that table and the chairs as well. This is in the room when you enter on the left. Um, currently. So anyhow, since 1991, several of her heirs um, have filed a number of unsuccessful lawsuits, um, four to be precise, against the Guggenheim Foundation on the basis of the moral rights provisions of this same French intellectual property code. And they have claimed that since her death, the collection has not been shown according to her wishes. And in particular, they've alleged that the collection has not been shown in its totality and that within the Palazzo there have been other works which have been donated to the Guggenheim Foundation um, by previous trustees of the foundation um, and that these are being displayed in, in the Palazzo and in the gardens of the Palazzo and that the, the Palazzo also has acknowledgements, you know, like some kind of plaques um, acknowledging those donors. And they've also claimed that the foundation has even um, desecrated Peggy's grave, which is in the Palazzo's garden, uh, by putting signage there and, and renting out the garden for events. And um, the heirs had once, uh, the latest round of, of this series of cases um, essentially relies on this statement um, that Peggy wrote in a letter to her cousin, Harry F. Guggenheim, who was then president of the Guggenheim Foundation. It was a letter from January 27th, 1969. And the letter said um, that the collection, as I mentioned before, should be kept as a whole in the Palazzo and that the collection be known as the Peggy Guggenheim Collection. And so the Guggenheim Foundation's reply to this evidence was that the deeds um, by which she actually donated the collection of Palazzo, they actually contain no such conditions. So there's a lot of myth around what was said and what wasn't, but ultimately the, the deeds, uh, the donation deeds, don't mention this. And so that, you know, this is where we really get back to the importance of evidence in a court case and putting things in writing. Um, so, as I said, in the most recent um, 
case concerning the Guggenheim, Peggy Guggenheim collection, the Paris Court of Appeals, they agreed with the, the court below, the Paris Court of First Instance, and they rejected the, the claim by the heirs on the basis of what's called um, res judicata, um, and that's Latin for it's, it's already been judged, um, and so they didn't want to hear it again. So they found in the foundation's favour, and that was in September 2016. Um, even more recently, actually, there was a decision last year concerning this photograph of Jimi Hendrix, uh, which was by, taken by um, a famous photographer, a photographer who's famous himself, Jared Mankiewicz. And it appeared, not, I don't think this specific photo, but a version of it originally appeared on Rolling cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Um, so again, this was a, a case that was brought before the Paris Court of Appeal because you know, they'd had this series of cases that we had looked at this issue before. And so the Paris Court of Appeal here actually recognised the relevance of the creative choices of photographers when they prepare um, beforehand and during and after a photo shoot. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so this is a case involving photographers and moral rights, but I can't help think of the curator who, you know, kind of like the photographer, there's, you know, some similar considerations around, you know, framing, quite here, here it's like quite literally and contextually as well, the way in which the object or the subject is viewed and the, the design of the impression or the experience for the viewer. I think ultimately what sets these um, French Court of Appeals decisions apart, not only from the approach that's been taken in Australia um, to originality, but also in other jurisdictions like the UK, the New Zealand, there's this very unique line of um, case precedent. Um, even the Court of Appeal, sorry, I should say the Court of Justice of the European Union um, have also taken a different approach, but it's different in that what they did in this series of cases was that they took the author's reputation into consideration. That's the main difference. So in the case of Langlois, we have one of the most influential fi figures of the um, international film community. Um, in the case of Guggenheim, you know, we've got one of the first supporters of um, groundbreaking American and European artists, you know, like Jackson Pollock. Um, in the case of Mankiewicz, we've got, you know, his re renowned reputation as a photographer of rock stars and musicians. Um, and so these judgments, they do shed a little bit of light on how a judicial system could consider or could rely on copyright and moral rights to attribute a legal status to these kind of collection come exhibitions whose authors, or we could say curators, wish for them to remain whole or total. Um, but their rationale for doing so, and that rationale is that the creation of the mind is worthy of protection because the selection choices have been made by an author of some reputation, that's very different to the approach taken to copyright authorship in jurisdictions like Australia, where generally, um, and that ICE TV case I discussed might suggest a new pathway, but it's still very new. Generally, minimal skill and labour is required in order for copyright to protect, um, copyright protectable subject matter. So I think this approach is valuing the skill and labour um, more, this, this is something that's more amenable to an art world view of a curator.
or, or so who is a curator um, or curator. But I think in doing so, it can actually raise more questions than it answers, because then we have to think, well, then who qualifies as a curator? Um, and to finish off with, this last little component that I wanted to look at comes back to exhibitions. Um, and I also wanted to look at some exhibitions which have inadvertently challenged, been challenged by curators themselves. Um, and there has been, I would say, a specific genealogy of curatorial practice which has evolved in which past exhibitions are recreated, restaged, reconstructed. And so each of these, uh, recreating, restaging, reconstructing, they're all, I think, slightly different curatorial acts. So a recreation of an exhibition is similar to reenactment. Um, that is, it's a recreating an exhibition which has already been done. Restaging and reconstructioning exhibitions um, involve the addition of elements um, or perspectives that were not present in the original iteration. So all three of these approaches have really thrived on this nostalgic appeal um, and the desire for curators to continually create innovative experiences for the visitor. Um, but the practice has also become popular amongst curators because I think it opens up the possibility of rewriting history or histories or at least revisiting history from a fresh perspective. Um, so I think it is also very much an authorial endeavour. And these sorts of exhibitions can even go so far as to, you know, I guess they can provoke the very notion of authorship and proprietary ownership on which copyright law and moral rights laws um, are premised on. They challenge this very notion of the curator's copyright, particularly where permission from the original curator hasn't been sought in the restaging or reconstruction or recreation of the exhibition. Um, in other words, one of the questions I have is can recreations or restagings and reconstructions of exhibitions, can they be a form of copyright infringement? And also we could ask, you know, do they impinge on moral rights of the curator? Um, I think these questions are more than apparent when we look back at, you know, what's, what's a kind of a brief, still a brief history of these kinds of exhibitions, but it's getting there. Um, so given our restrictions on time, I'm just going to briefly take you through these and um, open up more as a kind of a question rather than an answer um, for you to go off and consider for yourself. So some food for thought, if you like. So the image you can see here is taken from When Attitudes Become Form. Uh, Bern, 1969, Venice, 2003. And so this was an exhibition, I would call it a recreation, which was developed by the Italian curator Germano Cellant, um, together with Muccia Prada for the Prada Foundation. And it was designed by the architect Rem Koolhaas and the artist Thomas Demand. And the exhibition recreated Harold Zaman's landmark 1969 exhibition, uh, live in your head when attitudes become form. Um, and the original exhibition was important both for its serv survey of um, what was considered to be then cutting edge, edge conceptual and post-minimal art, uh, but equally for its curating techniques. Um, so, so here you can see the image 
from the 1969 exhibition. And here is a similar image of some of the same works in the 2013 version. Do you want me to flick back again? Um, this is, again, an image um, of a Richard Serra work from the 1969 exhibition. So this is like spot the difference. So <laughs> this is what it looks like in 2013. Same work, but what's the difference? Rope, yes, exactly. There's a rope. This is really important. <laughs> this is a really important intervention into the way in which the work is displayed. Um, so, you know, here you've got the work. It's, it's, it's literally cordoned off from the viewer, from the audience. Um, the other one is breaking the barrier between the audience and the artwork. You could, you could touch this and, you know. Um, could kill you. Yeah. So, so this was arguably one of the innovations made by Zayman, um, not just Zayman, but the, but the artists as well, in the 1969 version, in that the works were very deliberately spaced closely together. And actually, it was a very small exhibition space. Um, in, in, Bern, in Bern, but so the works were placed very closely together. So as the audience member, you, you kind of, you couldn't have a straight, view, straight viewing or experience path. You sort of had to duck and dive or weave in and through the artworks and that was deliberate. That was a deliberate curatorial innovation of Zaman's. So that's one of the reasons why this exhibition was so important in, in Zayman's uh, oeuvre of exhibitions. Um, another example is um, an exhibition called Other Primary Structures, which was curated by Jens Hoffman for the Jewish Museum in New York in 2014. Um, and Jens has attracted recent controversy. I won't say why, but I'm sure if you Google him, now, um, there's, yes, he's, he's no longer the deputy director of the Jewish Museum of New York. I'll just put it that. Um, anyhow, I still think his version of what was primary structures is very important in this history or sub-history of exhibitions. Um, so this was a, his, uh, sorry. This is other primary structures, and this was a reinterpretation of one of the first museum surveys of minimalism, which was also held at the Jewish Museum in New York in 1966, um, and it was titled Primary Structures. So we had primary structures in 1966 and other primary structures in 2014. And it was originally curated by Kynaston McShine, who was actually one of the first um, black male curators working in a sort of mainstream art institution in the 60s in America. Um, this wasn't a straightforward recreation of the original exhibition. Um, in fact, I'm not, uh, I have to look into this a bit more, but I don't think there were any of the original works were again displayed in the exhibition. There were images of the original works printed full scale in the space, so you can see that here, but there were other sculptures um, made at the time, but not included in the exhibition, which were included in other primary structures. Um, and so the, 
the, the exhibition concept for Hoffman's version was to kind of correct art history by including artists that have previously been overlooked um, from other geographic regions like South America and Asia. Um, and he really wanted to place minimalism in an international context beyond the US and the UK. Um, the final exhibition that I wanted to mention here as an example. Again, it's not a recreation as such, um, but it was a revisiting of this exhibition held at the ICA in London in 1968. It was called Cybernetic Serendipity. And it was one of the first exhibitions to focus on the links between art and technology. Um, and in, so in this instance, the original curator, um, I'm not sure how to say her first name, Jassia Reichart, with a J. Um, she turned, she's actually turned down numerous curators who have offered to restage this original exhibition. Um, and in response to these proposals that she's received, she said, and this is probably one of the only published quotes I can get from a curator on why they haven't been comfortable with their exhibition being reproduced or recreated. And what she said was, what was new in 1968 is not new today. You have to let history go by. The proper role of history is to stick to the past. And so this is what that revisit, the revisiting of that exhibition by the ACA looked like. So the ICA, what they basically did was they staged a display of documentation relating to the original exhibition. So they included press clippings, photographs, invitation cards, publications. And so while in each of these examples, I think it's evident that the new curators and their teams, they, they consulted and thoroughly researched their exhibitions, that is without a doubt. Um, but I think from the perspective of the law, at least, I think it's curious that the question of copyright or even the mention of copyright in the curated exhibition itself, rather than the artworks, it has not been expressly addressed in any of the information or the writings or the discussions which have come out of these three exhibitions. Um, I think they need to more actively and confidently address the curator's copyright and the moral rights of the curator when, when these types of exhibitions take place. Um, otherwise, it's a kind of an elephant in the room which exists when you see these exhibitions. And I think as the role of the curator continues to evolve, which I'm no, I have no doubt it will, so one would hope will the, the remit of copyright law and the evolution of copyright law when it comes to curatorial practice and exhibitions. So until then, you know, right now we're in this moment where curating remains one of these developing areas of creative production which the law is playing catch up with. And the law tends to do that actually. Um, and so that's kind of all I had for tonight. And I had this lovely Pablo Helguera cartoon. Uh, <laughs> I, I am happy to take questions, so. Thanks very much, Alana. Um, we have time for some questions. Has anyone got a burning question? Start us off. Okay, great. I'll follow you then. Um, going back to your Section 22 yes. slide and the moral questions. So as a performance artist, is would I be required to script my performance or is this simply the documentation of it enough to to ensure that it's and what are the ramifications of that 
on those performance artists who reproduce famous performance art pieces? Very good question. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, in order for a work to be protected by copyright, it has to be reduced to material form. So something that's first reduced to writing, a performance is not reduced to, in the eyes of the law, it's not reduced to material form, I should say. It's ephemeral. It's an event. It's a spectacle, right? Like that horse racing case. Yeah, so if you script it, what yeah, you're doing is you've reduced it to material form. So what you've actually created there is a literary work. And a literary work... I'll go back to that. Oh, I don't have it there. A work includes a literary work. So you would have, uh, potentially, copyright protection in what you've written down. That is protected. So if somebody was to take those instructions, let's say, and create a performance from those instructions, you could argue that that's an adaptation of your copyright protected work. And you as the copyright owner, you actually have an exclusive right to adapt your work. So that's how you could protect it. But that's why, as a lawyer, I would usually advise performers in that sort of situation to, to write and document what you're doing. Same, same with choreographers. And sorry, what was the second part of your question as well? well? After I've documented it yes. and scripted it, yes. someone else in 20 years' time reproduces my famous piece of performance art. Are they contravening um, The other thing I would note, and we haven't covered this tonight, but I did cover it during the day, is that um, there is a recent addition to the Copyright Act in Australia called Performers' Rights. And it's actually been introduced specifically because of this issue that performance is by, way, by nature ephemeral, ephemeral. but um, the law has started to <laughs> notice and agree that we should, should recognise the rights of performers and the value of what they're creating. And so performers' rights, kind of like moral rights, it's not a copyright as such, but it's kind of tapped onto the back of copyrights. And if you're a performer, you now have the right to... I guess it's a right to not. To, it's a right to uh, refuse people to film you, or to make sound recordings of your live performance. So that's it's not a copyright. It's just a separate performer's right to refusing to. You, you basically have a right to not let people take videos or sound recordings of your performance. So that's a specific other section of the Copyright Act, which is been introduced to try and um, reduce that kind of gap in the law. Yeah. So I guess my, question, my answer would be that for any situation, any performance, um, when you're looking at a legal analysis, you have to look at that specific performance. We can't answer it with a general yes or no. Um, but in general, that's some of the principles that are relevant. So you could look at have you reduced anything else to material form, writing, for example? Can that be protected? Or otherwise, as a performer with performers' rights, can you stop people from filming you in that, in that way? In terms of re-performance of a performance that is... Let's say the performance that you initially created was spontaneous, you, you know? If I just break out here and do a dance, it's spontaneous. I haven't reduced it to material form. Um, but, yeah, the, there is a... There is, it's, it's arguable that that's not actually protected by copyright, and so therefore someone who's recreating that is not infringing your copyright because you don't have copyright in the first place.
Are there other questions? Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. Just thinking about exhibitions, not necessarily by independent curators, but by curators that are employed by institutions, because I know when I've worked at institutions, I've signed paperwork that basically says anything I create on the job is their property. Yeah. Does that kind of count with some of these exhibitions then as well? With like, what exhibitions? <laughs> well, thinking maybe even about like the field getting restaged this yep. year at the NGV. Yep. So I've thought about that one as well, um, and um, and 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 I'd also say that kind of fits within this trajectory of exhibitions, exhibition reconstructions. But yeah, in that situation, it's a bit different because it's it's kind of like well, we don't know what happened in the ICA arrangement, but. With the NGV exhibition, the field was originally, when was it done? 1969? 68. So when the St Kilda Road building opened, that was the exhibition that they opened the building with. Um, so for them to recreate it, you could argue, well, they own the copyrights to the original exhibition, if copyrights subsist in the original exhibition at all. Um, but yeah, when it comes to creating things as part of your employment, um, copyright law, the copyright legislation says that the first owner of the copyright is actually your employer. Um, your contra employment contract is also really important to look at because whatever's in your contract can trump that principle. Um, but that's where it's also the, that kind of line between, like, even what is a freelance curator and, you know, are you actually employed or are you subcontracted? From a legal perspective, that's quite a murky area. It's not so straightforward. So you just have to be really careful and read whatever you're asked to sign and make sure you understand it. And if you don't understand it, then ask what it means. Yeah, because chances are if you don't understand it, they don't understand it either. And then what's the point of having it in the first place? Yeah. I have a more hypothetical question, mm -hmm. or I guess I'd like to raise what troubles me about the like about Langlois and about the Guggenheim case, which is to say, essentially they're trying to lock a set of objects into a fixed position, and yeah. it's one thing for Salon to bring back together or remake works from when attitudes become form, and credit or not credit. Zeman for such a restaging on a temporary basis, yep. but it doesn't lock the objects into a certain relationship with other objects. Mm -hmm. What I find really troubling about Langlois and potentially about the Guggenheim, if it ever rules in the family's favor, is that the authorship of a collector, curator, but collector, trumps any kind of agency the original objects or artists might have. Yeah. But just, I'm more wondering yeah. your thoughts on that. Yeah, my thoughts are, it makes me think of this distinction between the physical title to the objects themselves and any copyright that attaches to it. So something I didn't mention is that, um, like, with a more simple scenario, if I buy an artwork from a gallery and I buy the physical artwork, I put it up in my home, I've bought the physical artwork. I have not, in general bought the copyrights in that artwork, okay? So if I've bought the physical title to the work, it's a piece of personal property. And personal property law says that if you buy it and own it, that means that you can possess it to the exclusion of anyone else. You can possess the physical object to the exclusion of it. That is your right as the owner of that piece of personal property, just like it is my right to, to these pieces of paper. 
because I've assumed that uh, whoever's printed them never wants them back. So I can now enjoy it to the exclusion of anybody else. They are mine, okay? So I can do with them what I please. That's my property. That's the physical title. Um, but usually when you buy a work of art, you do not also buy the copyrights unless that's explicitly discussed as part of that transaction. So it is problematic. Um, that's where moral rights can kind of come into it and the moral rights of the artist of each of those objects can also come into it. Um, and moral rights tells us that um, essentially the author or the creator of those, each of those objects, they have rights notwithstanding that they might not have the physical title to the work anymore. Not with saying that they might not even have the copyrights to the work anymore that might also have been sold. But the moral rights in particular, they stay with the artist. And the moral rights are the right to be attributed, the right to not be falsely attributed, uh, and the right to not have your work subjected to derogatory treatment. So I think I had that on a slide. I'll just show you what it looks like. So with derogatory treatment, I think it's also interesting in an Australian perspective that one way in which the legislation actually speculates that derogatory treatment can occur is through the exhibition. So I'm looking at part B here, the exhibition in public of the work that's it's exhibited in a way that's prejudicial to the author's honour or reputation because of the manner or the place in, the ex in which the exhibition occurs. So it doesn't mean some sort of direct physical intervention with the physical work. Um, but it's even in the way it's exhibited that it could affect the honour or reputation of the artist. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that if I buy work from a gallery, I'm not the artist, I'm the owner, I'm the collector. I, I can do with it what I please from the perspective of personal property law, physical property, but from the perspective of moral rights law, I actually can't. I'm still... The, the moral rights still stay with the artist. So there are different areas of law which you have to think about. So, yeah. I'll just kind of randomly interject on that. I was going to say that for me, the Guggenheim seemed a far more worrying case because this is talking about, even though they lost, it was talking about one-off objects, while the Langlois collection fundamentally is, that, is comprised of infinite, intended, at least intended, infinitely reproducible objects, that its value came from these near valueless objects being arranged as something that represented his identity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel there is a difference in that, that these objects existed because he was a, you know, a hoarder, basically, I think is a mm -hmm. nice way of describing. He was a obsessive compulsive hoarder, and this is just otherwise junk, reproducible paraphernalia that only by the existence of his personality gave it value. So I kind of feel that's the other side of the Langlois Guggenheim case that these, yeah, sorry, I kind of feel like I've covered that. <laughs> um, so I just wonder if you wanted to add anything to that or otherwise I'll give it. I have a question On both comments. Okay. I think you said earlier, and maybe you can clarify for this, so do the moral rights cease on the death of the artist, in which case the Guggenheim things could be yeah. permanently locked? It's interesting you ask that because as I was going through, I was thinking about that question myself. And I would say that it's actually slightly, that's where the French intellectual property code actually slightly differs from Australian moral rights law. So, um, actually, no. 
I've worked it out, sorry. So a lot of this is like a work in progress, even for lawyers, like we don't, you know, we have to work through these kind of things. So, okay, in Australia, moral rights, the life of moral rights is the same as the life of copyright. So for a painting, that's the easiest one, a painting, a straightforward painting, for example, which, to which copyright, in which copyright subsists. Um, the life of copyright is not endless. It's limited to, if it was created after 2005, 70 years after the death of the author, the year of the author's death. Um, so the moral rights would live on after the death of the author or the painter of that work um, for the same length of time as the copyright. So that's the, that's the situation in Australia. <laughs> So it's sorry, but it, it, it's, it's not something that can be divested like copyrights can. You can't sell it to someone else. Also, there's a bit of a question about can you waive your moral rights? Um, a lot of contracts... Can your estate defend those rights? Uh, yes, yes, as long as they still exist. So it's got to... They can only... Um, defend the infringement of your moral rights for their existence, so for the 70 years after your death, in the case of a painting or a literary work or a musical work, but for example, if it's a sound recording, it would only be 50 years after the year it was first published. So it depends on the actual nature of the work itself, to how long the copyright lasts for and how long the moral rights last for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just wondering with an exhibition if um, if it has been tried in court or um, if it in theory could be that it's not the entire exhibition but elements of the exhibition, for example, you can show that combination of artists but you can't call it when attitudes become formed. Maybe the title then is copyrighted or um, you can't show that Sarah work against a geometric brick, you know, black and white patterned ground or mm. something like that. Mm. If there's, there's you know, various attributes of the exhibition that could individually be copyrighted. Well, I think like this, for example, you could argue that this is a drawing um, of a diagram of an exhibition, exhibition design, and this could quite easily fall within the definition of drawing and therefore artistic work under the Copyright Act, and so therefore it's a it, it, it is the type of work in which copyright could potentially subsist. As a when you think of like an aspect of ex exhibition, we, again, we have to think of um, that analysis of is it, is it in material form, is it sufficiently original, is it subject matter which is protected by copyright. If we do that sort of analysis, it's, it just depends on what it actually is that's been that, that you're talking about. So, so here I mean the design is an aspect of the exhibition, right? It's a whole, it's a design of the full exhibition, but just the design itself is an aspect of the exhibition. So that give, gets its own copyright protection. Um, as, you know, if you have one wall with some arrangement on it, it just depends. It depends if, you know, then we have to look at, you know, this compilation, can it be protected as a sculpture or not? So again, you've just got to do that analysis of is it actually copyright protectable subject matter? Is it original? Is it in material form? Um, yeah. Do you want to ask a question? 
Um, regarding section 195 of the... Was that what it was with the you moral rights? You guys have been better than this than me. I don't remember what they said. Uh, I was like, just well, reading well. it. Um, <laughs> so when we're, when we're talking about prejudice to yeah. the author's rights, uh, who determines that? Is it the court? Is it the author? Yeah. Is it a layperson? Yeah. Um, you said that there hadn't been a lot of court cases regarding this in Australia. Yeah, so that's right. do we not know at the moment who determines prejudice? Yes. And also, do we know whether... For, uh, for treatments of to be derogatory, whether or not intent is required. So, intent, okay. Yeah, um, they're the questions I'm wondering about. Yeah, um, yeah, so you're right in that um, we haven't actually had a case which has looked at this section of the Copyright Act, um, which has come behind before a court with enough authority. Um, like I mentioned earlier today, there's a lot of cases that we never hear about because they just don't end up in court settled out of court, they're usually, the people involved are usually bound um, to um, keep them, you know, whatever's been discussed or argued about confidential, it's part of the conditions of it, so we don't know, um, that, that's why we don't know, a lot of these things just don't cover, it's very expensive to successfully bring an action in court, um, so that's why this is a grey area. This is all we have at the moment to guide us what the legislation has defined as derogatory treatment. Um, in that, I would say, well, how, you know, how would I, as a lawyer, then advise somebody on this? You have to think broadly. I, wouldn't, I would err on the side of caution and think broadly about what derogatory treatment can be. And I would also try and... Well, I'd suggest that you put yourself in the shoes of a reasonable, ordinary person. Um, which you might already think you feel, which is okay as well. But that's generally what we would say as a lawyer. Think about what would the reasonable ordinary person think is derogatory treatment. And then, you know, you could even look at the dictionary definition of what is derogatory and that sort of a thing. So it's, it's not clear. But, yeah, as, uh, to, to be on the safe side, you, I'd suggest you think about it in a, broad, in a broader way. Yeah. One last question. Here you go. Um, well, you touched on the idea there that it's very expensive to um, really um, do anything in these cases in terms of, um, you know, um, protecting yourself in the law and so forth. So as independent curators, we don't often have the resources to kind of defend ourselves in this way. So what would your... Um, is there anything in Australia... Like, like I don't know much about, um, like, the... Um, arts law kind of organisation or yeah. people like that, like where would we start by kind of um, like, you know, taking those actions and what will be a good sure. first step? Um, well, the first thing I'd say is just make sure that all of your discussions you have in writing, if you have a meeting with someone, take notes. If you have a phone discussion, take notes. Um, I mean, and not just, not just to protect yourself, but also just so you can look back and remember what was discussed and what was agreed on. So it's just useful to have that as well. Same as when you're entering into a written, formal written contract with someone, which is not necessary in all circumstances, but if you are actually going to the extent of writing up a formal contract, which is signed by whoever's involved, um, it's, it's, again, it's a way of... Um, I guess, risk, you know, reducing the risk of what you're doing, but um, it's also about making sure that everyone's on the same page as to what everyone's rights are, what everyone's obligations are. So having things in writing, step one. Um, and, you know, anyone, everyone can do that. 
um, and date. If you are a practicing artist especially, uh, I would date what you're doing um, because sometimes it can be really useful to um, establish when something was actually done or worked on if you want to prove that, um, especially when it comes to copying. So when it comes to copyright infringement, you actually need to be able to establish that it's been copied. You need evidence of copying. It can't just be a coincidence. Sometimes there are random coincidences out there, but you have to actually establish copying to be able to establish copyright infringement. Um, there are a lot of resources online when it comes to um, writing contracts, um, but it's really difficult to navigate through the land of the internet when it comes to what's actually appropriate and not. And when it comes to entering into arrangements that are recognised by the law, like, that's a really dangerous area. Like, that's where I would say, no, that's really dangerous. I know, like, you know, in academia, the, you know, referencing things that have come from online, that's become a lot more lax in the last 10 years. You know, it's okay to reference an article that was in, um, you know, that you found on the internet, as long as it's from a reliable source. You know, 10 years ago, you'd have to really justify why you were finding that online as opposed to in a published um, academic journal. But so with the law, it is different because every single factual scenario is different. It is always different, especially when it comes to art, because anything can effectively be art. Um, it means that what happened in one set of circumstances and how you apply the law to that one set of circumstances is not necessarily how you'd apply the law to a, even a similar set of circumstances later on. And time can also change. Um, how the law applies to, to the facts. So, so there's no one set way of doing things. There's no one set template that you can use as a curator. You can have a starting point which has some guiding principles as to what you should include, but that's a starting point. And it's never, you know, if you want it to, to be a useful document from a legal perspective, then it's, n it's never going to be the case that you can always just fill in your name and the date and that's it. You really have to look at the specific arrangement between you as an independent curator and who is engaging you and, and write it for that purpose. Um, from a more practical perspective, where can you start to look? The Arsenal Centre is really good. NAV is really good as well um, in Australia. That's Copyright Agency has a lot of useful resources as well. Um, if you're a writer, um, some of the Writers Guild websites are really useful as well. Um, and same, if you're like a member of like an industry, some sort of industry association, they can often have good resources as well. But at the end of the day, you'll always need to adapt whatever you're given to a particular set of facts. That, that's where a lawyer comes in, essentially. So a lawyer is there to help you work out if that is actually relevant to, to that specific set of facts. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much, Alana. Please join no me. In. Thank you.